This film. Oh, yeah. Tell us something about the storyline. Well, you see, it's, uh, it's about a group of Connor Garden strange people mm. on a coach tour around uh, anywhere, really. But, and uh, things happen to them, you see. Something like Goldie Diddly 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 Magical Mystery Tour. Welcome to this week's one that was fab. I'm Ed Chin. And I'm John Stone. Well, last week was Easter, so what goes along with Easter other than bunnies and eggs? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you're wondering, the Harrison Estate has actually I don't think they reached out to the company. I think the guys who run this company are friends of Danny's, and they have put out a product called dad grass actually the dad grass and the mom grass seem to have been around for a while that's the impression i took is that these are products that were around this is just a branding of something so that people would be interested the point of this product is it's thc free enough marijuana that it can be sold legally throughout the united states in all 50 states. Actually, 48 of the 50 states. There, there's two states, apparently, that they cannot ship to. Ah, uh, Texas being one of them. <laughs> no, it, it's legal in Texas. Well, it's funny. Marijuana without any THC isn't really marijuana. That's kind of the impression that I would get. If we think that George is paying any attention from wherever higher plane of existence he is right now, he has to be getting just a huge laugh out of this. It's like, What's the point of pot if it doesn't get you high? <laughs> right. This is not what I got busted for. Although, I will say there is a point to it. CBD is a quality product, and it is quite possibly a better pain reliever and assists in certain physical ailments. I totally agree. I will admit to I take it daily. It, it helps with little aches and pains. I've used it when I had a toothache, and it helped. That's all I can say. Now, I, I'm not hugely familiar with the other variant, CBG. Cannabigerol, or CBG for short, is often referred to as the mother of all cannabinoids. This is because all cannabinoids start off as CBG, and over the life cycle of the plant, break down to form other cannabinoids, such as THC and CBD. CBG was first discovered in 1964. What is different about what they have licensed from the Harrison estate and they're putting out under the title all things must grass which apparently is a pun that Danny came up with right so they've grown these varieties which are more or less THC free the diet coke version of marijuana shall we say and this brand seems to actually come directly from a single flower or a single batch of flowers rather than you know, normally they extract the CBD or CBG and put it out. Right. And all the branding on it is from All Things Was Pass. And I actually may order some of it just because I've got room in my All Things Must Pass crate. That might be nice to just throw in there <laughs> next to the gnomes. Inside the vault. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, you know, it, and it may be really good stuff. I, I don't know. My one complaint, and which is a complaint that a lot of people seem to have, putting it out as a smokable, you know, I don't know if that's quite 
the best thing in the world. You know, maybe they should have put it out as just strictly edibles and, and tinctures, which they are also selling. Marijuana cigarettes are probably certainly less carcinogenic than tobacco cigarettes, but I think they did probably play a role in what caused George to pass. You know, after watching Get Back, they smoked like fiends. What I'm surprised at is that Paul isn't stricken. I mean, they smoked like crazy. I believe George probably started smoking when he was 14 or so. So I think a lot of it had to do with the amount that he consumed. He a, a lot of cigarettes. I don't disagree with that. And the attack, from a medical perspective, we know that wound care is antithetical to cancer care. So getting stabbed like that and getting stitched up like that definitely hurt his recovery. Yeah. It would tend to cause the cancer to rise back up. I think you're right. I think the marijuana certainly plays a distant third role to the years of cigarettes, particularly since he was smoking tobacco really all the way up through brainwashed. Right. I mean, you know, he even comments on it in the lyrics. You can also figure that smoking pot certainly changed their trajectory concerning how much alcohol they consumed. I have no real issue with the product other than that. It may not be the classiest thing to sell this on George Harrison's back, but the estate, they can make their own decisions. <laughs> when asked, George Harrison said, <laughs> <laughs> and I see no problem with pot being something that they sponsor. And in fact, this has split the Beatle community pretty much wide open, which is kind of interesting to me. It is, because they certainly, through a lot of their career, were <laughs> definite advocates for pot smoking. So to say, oh, no, that's terrible. It's like, well, that's what they did. So, Well, what's ter- what, what, what the people seem to think is terrible is, A, it's, it's tacky, and I will agree, it's, it's a little bit tacky. It's borderline on the tacky side. Well, I I will respectfully disagree. I don't, I don't think it really matters. You, you think it's funny rather than tacky? Yes. <laughs> Especially when you take it in the direction of the way they're going. It's like, this is a legal product. Why are you selling a stash? <laughs> Why are you selling tape boxes to hide your legal cigarettes in? <laughs> well, you know, that whole culture thing is going to play into how it's marketed as it becomes legal. And it's going to be legal everywhere in the not too distant. I'm convinced. And to finish my thought from before, you know, I could actually see Apple deciding to get behind a classy version of this somewhere down the line when pot is legalized. Yes. <laughs> you know, they Apple has sponsored Apple and Beatles album cover Zippo lighters. You know, how much different is that than a Beatles brand illegal pot? I can't wait for the Apple branded Benson and Hedges B-52 bombers. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> no? Not as long as Sean is still alive. <laughs> now, once we get down to the next generation, anything goes. Yeah, possibly. But, you know, Richard Delello can promote it. That's where I first heard about it. So it was in his book. The AI head of Richard Delillo. <laughs> we'll preserve him just so he can come out with advertisements. Right. You thought we would disagree. I, I, it turns out we actually don't disagree all that much on this thing, other than that I do think it's definitely cheesy. And I say not. So there, there you go. <laughs> so we do disagree on that. And I don't think the Harrison estate spent that much time either on the concept or on approvals. So I also don't think it's taking away from whatever Danny and his five-year plan. We still haven't heard what's coming out this year. Yeah. You know, I don't know what kind of royalty rate or, or where that money goes or anything like that. But I think he probably just thought it was funny. There's exactly one press release from the guys behind Dadgrass where they say, oh, yeah, we were sitting around smoking with Danny. Smoking? <laughs> I don't think you were smoking your product. <laughs> I think you were smoking something else. <laughs> and Danny came up with the pun. And then we just all sat around laughing and laughing and laughing. And then we decided, yeah, we got to do this. That seems to be the origin of it. Sitting around a table, smoking a joint and 
or bong or whatever it is. That'll be the next thing, bongs. It'll be all things must bong. I think the board of that classy line, but the Dadgrass folks have also promised us that there is more coming, so they may have come up with some other ideas, Harrison-wise. The best line about this is, how in the world did George get the jump on Paul on this? <laughs> well, <laughs> right. That's a good question. <laughs> that may be part of uh, MPL's next move. The high, 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 and let me roll it. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's all sitting right there, waiting to be used. So have we beaten that horse to death yet? Well, yes. Twice. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> so our, our second uh, little bit of news here. The Todd Rundgren tour has picked up their additional dates. They have actually basically doubled the length of the tour. Yeah, that, that's pretty cool. It's kind of interesting that Todd has almost made a career out of doing Beatle numbers. It's also kind of amazing that Todd just lives on the road. Because, you know, he stopped. Then, like, two days after he stopped the first round of... Uh, Rubber Soul Revolver shows, he has been on the road with uh, Daryl Hall. And then he, he finishes with Daryl Hall, and two days later, he's going back on the road with these guys, right. which includes uh, our good friend Darren Murphy. Yes. Hello, Darren. And so I, I'm glad I'm actually going to get the chance to see the show. They are, they are coming to Houston, so unlike the first time, I will have actually seen the show when we talk to him once he, once he finishes up with it. <laughs> right. The White Album show, they came no closer than Dallas. Right. Well, when he gets his Beatle Jones back, then he'll come visit us. They are running through the end of June, so the earliest that's probably going to happen is the fall, and hopefully we'll have some product to review by then. Maybe. They're playing the Majestic Theater in San Antonio, which is a great old theater. Yeah, we actually played there with Christine McVie. Very cool. Then here in Houston, they're playing the uh, Cullen Performance Hall. I played there, too. (laughs) They've since revised it considerably. I guess about 10 or 15 years ago, they basically rebuilt the thing from the ground up. Well, everything in my life has either been torn down or rebuilt, so I'm not surprised, <laughs> including me. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're going to Phoenix, and you know, they got a bunch of other sites, and, and then it ends in Pennsylvania and Illinois, which is kind of weird. <laughs> but you know, you, you schedule where you schedule. Right. Maybe it's near one of Todd's houses. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) could well be so i I didn't know he was playing with daryl hall that's pretty cool they are on their way into austin right now they're in california they sound great together that's a a great pairing check it out on daryl's house it's they're they're just great together yeah because daryl's bored with john oates (laughs) well you know todd produced several hall and oates albums and was highly influential on daryl's singing actually he there's a definite influence uh after he uh, did those albums that's our take on the news here our main topic for this week we're talking about the magical mystery tour it's been 10 years since the blu-ray of magical mystery tour and it's time for a re-release again believe it or not <laughs> no announcement but you're ready anyway. i am actually ready for it they scanned it in 4k when they did the blu-ray i'd like to see a full resolution release of it here somewhere yeah boy i remember the first time i saw it was at a college the uh the version was so bad <laughs> it was so cheap looking dark and grainy and oh yeah magical mystery tour has to be one of the most counterfeited beatles product because well there was a period in time when apple didn't care and everybody released their own hacked up off a 16 millimeter yeah. copy of magical mystery tour on vhs i remember like eight different covers for it i have one of those <laughs> you know that was all you could get so that's what i collected before we get into this what do you think of magical mystery Tour? is it as bad as we've all both said and been led to believe through the years you know I, i'm kind of of the same opinion that McCartney says about the white album. It's like, it's the Beatles, you know? (laughs) So I appreciate it. You know, there's some cool stuff in there. It doesn't make a lot of sense in a narrative way. I mean, it's just kind of uh, random thoughts. 
if you read the cartoon book, which came with the EP and the LP, then it actually almost makes sense. They've found enough narrative to string together words which tell a story. <laughs> yeah, but almost makes sense. Is it making sense? It was odd, and it was odd then. And we didn't associate it with anything as far as the record was concerned. It was just another record with cool pictures. And But I didn't see Magical Mystery Tour for years after I heard the album. So it wasn't really attached. ABC had apparently signed a contract to consider playing it in the States. But, well, when they saw it, no, we don't want to air that. The reaction of the British press was so bad that ABC just pulled out of it altogether. Yeah, I mean, obviously it wasn't a binding contract. It, it just gave them the right of first refusal, I guess. Probably something which came about after them airing Beatles at Shea Stadium. Right. Before we get back into the narrative, there's an article by a fellow named Douglas A. White. Douglas with two S's, and he claims to be a PhD. I, well, I will let our professors of literary science tell us whether this is actually... Uh, reasonable yeah it's the, funny the, the the tack he takes is that magical mystery tour is very well thought out and conceptualized and could be compared to ulysses <laughs> the narrative of this piece was uh mind-boggling almost because it goes against what we all have heard all our lives, which was, it was all kind of thrown together last minute. But he s seems to feel like it was very well thought out. Let me read just one short little paragraph here. Don't worry, it's not enough that it'll put you to sleep, but <laughs> it, it will give you an idea of, of where he's coming from. The key to gaining a deeper understanding of the tour is to realize that the tour is organized around a multi-layered stream of consciousness, anthropomorphic, poetic metaphor that is deliberately modeled after the technique used by James Joyce in his famous novel Ulysses. Liverpool, which is only a ferry ride across the Irish Sea from Dublin, and the whole of England become for the Beatles analogous to the Dublin and Ireland imagined by Joyce as a giant collective human being. Each episode of the tour is a visit to an important aspect of the giant's physiology and psychology. During the tour, a group of ordinary English folks, infiltrated by the zany Beatles, explore the body and mind of this giant and discover that they are the giant, both collectively and individually. The giant is Purusha of the Vedas, Adam Kataman of the Kabbalah, Finn McCool of Finnegan's Wake, and Ulysses of the Homeric Epic, and in the guise of Leopold Bloom's Dublin of June 16th, 1904. Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, that, that put you to sleep. <laughs> um well, yeah, I, I could have laughed so softly in the background, I guess. But yeah, really? <laughs> this just doesn't seem to encapsulate John saying, I didn't know what to do, so I wrote a scene about a woman eating spaghetti. There's no Ulysses in that. <laughs> we didn't really want to do something that didn't represent where we were up to. However... People didn't know where we were up to. And it wasn't the kind of thing we could say, do a disclaimer before and say, ladies and gentlemen, what you're about to see is the product of our imaginations. And believe me, at this point, they're quite vivid. So in the arena special, which was produced uh, to coincide with the premiere of the 4K scan of Magical Mystery Tour, and yes, it is time for them to re-release Magical Mystery Tour now that we have 4K discs and 4K streaming. I'd like to see it at the ultimate resolution, no matter how bad it may look. Um, but they have a, a BBC exec on there, and what he says is that it was fairly early in the spring and that they discovered that they had a, a gap on Boxing Day, Boxing Day being the day after Christmas. Uh, Christmas is kind of a more religious holiday in England, and Boxing Day is more like everybody gets together and parties. Right. Which, you know, includes television and kids running around and having fun and so on and so forth. Just as an aside, when I was younger and living the Beatles, they talked about this special being on Boxing Day. And in my head, Boxing Day became the day after Christmas where you put all the boxes up. 
There you go. Close enough. So according to this exec, someone from the Beatles or someone in the Beatles circle had actually mentioned that they were considering making the film, which would become the Magical Mystery Tour, even before the BBC approached them. You know, the, the idea was that they were going to make a film or a presentation of Sgt. Pepper. Post Day in the Life promo. Yes. And that being perhaps part of it. But yes, I've seen a sketch of how it was going to be done as far as production was concerned, but it became Magical Mystery Tour. But all that was documented by Hunter Davies. Magical Mystery Tour as a song was started right after Sgt. Pepper was finished and they were working on stuff almost immediately. But the film, per se, didn't come into existence as an idea until a little bit later. You know, Apple, as a concept, had already come into existence. Yes. You know, on Pepper, the, you know, they thanked the Apple, so... Yes. So maybe they were already thinking about, what's the next thing we're going to do for Apple? What, what is the product that Apple's going to put out? The concept of the show came about during the flight home when Paul went to visit Jane in America, and that was in late April. He had sketched that out at that point. It turns out that Brian was actually around for the beginning of Magical Mystery Tour. He had to have been. I was looking at the timeline. He died on August 27th. They began filming on September 11th. That's two weeks. Now, you know, the the whole narrative of, well, the reason Magical Mystery Tour didn't do well was because Brian wasn't there to arrange everything. But you can't tell me that they were two weeks away from filming and Brian had had nothing to do with it. It, it doesn't make sense. So clearly the Beatles had had an idea how it was going to come out. They didn't know, but they were thinking, we're going to make this film a far out psychedelic film, not like anything that has been done by those squares before. It was described to me as a film made by the Beatles, containing the Beatles and containing a lot of music. And that, as far as I was concerned, was good enough. So the whole contract came on just that tiny bit of information, not something that would happen today. I think the editing reportedly took like 11 weeks. I mean, it was a long time to put it all together. Well, for the past two or three weeks or so, Ken, we've been chopping on this film. And some of it's very nice and some of it's boring, you see, Mm. because you just got to look through hundreds and hundreds of bits of film. How much have you cut out? Uh, quite a lot. Yes. So we, could, we had it planned. So yeah, well, we'll make the film and then we'll have three weeks to edit it mm. and put the sound on. I was saying eight weeks to edit it and we're just getting into the sound now. Mm. So it's a lot harder than what we well, first imagined. The story behind that was apparently during editing, each of the four of them would come in and re-edit what the editor and the others had done. Every day they would not get through even enough to dailies. Again, that's kind of myth. I mean, I can't imagine Ringo came in and edited anything. So, you know, they didn't come in and cut, cut, you know, and I don't know that George would have either. So is it a, you know, kind of a big dick contest between John and Paul? My interest is if Apple owns all that, are there outtakes from Magical Mystery Tour? Well, there are certainly some outtakes from Magical Mystery Tour. The whole fish and ships bit, that exists. What we know of and what's been released either through this arena TV special or through the bootleg is just about an hour's worth of outtakes from Magical Mystery Tour. Right. Well, you know, certainly Apple took care of Get Back and that film that they put together for Capital. And I mean, they, they held on to things. So... Maybe they held on to some of that. I think the only way that comes out is if they do something like what Peter Jackson did and you know, forget about the narrative completely and do a here's the making of Magical Mystery <laughs> Tour day by day. Right. That's probably the only way a lot of that footage would be usable. And I, I, you know, you got to believe a lot of it is them just sitting around on the bus looking terribly bored. We get 10 minutes of that in the film itself. <laughs> it's true. But wasn't there something uh, with Spencer Davis? 
that has come out fairly early on in the process they were gonna have four or five different acts it's gonna be the magical mystery tour plus variety show which actually interestingly enough kind of precedes the rock and roll circus true these ideas were all just in the air floating around <laughs> much like the pot smoke which was also floating around <laughs> mick is like well you didn't use that idea can i have it the stones didn't even bother to ask most of the time <laughs> right so the bbc came to them they came to some sort of agreement and you know i guess brian was involved in getting things scheduled from the earliest period of time there's a discussion of paul and brian sitting there looking at the empty circle from the very early days of planning the film. And then Brian starts suggesting things, and then Paul starts suggesting things. They slowly filled in this circle. The description of the composition of Magical Mystery Tour by Hunter Davies says that they didn't even have any lyrics. They just kind of went in and, and recorded a backing track, a feel, and so the, the, the lyrics came later. But they were certainly in the midst of recording and writing because when they were writing a little help for my friends paul apparently had a significant amount of food on the hill finished which he played for john and hunter and so the music was happening early in the year paul was always writing some material Peter Asher tells the story of Fool on the Hill, and he had the whole arrangement in his head, recorders and everything. Wow. Another example of just what a genius this guy actually is. He apparently sang all of the parts to them, to the Asher family. That's funny. You know, thinking about this, though, led me to also consider that by the time they came to doing recordings for the film, getting the songs together, George had recorded It's All Too Much. And in a way, I'm sorry that that was the song that made it to Magical Mystery Tour. That would have been great, in my opinion. And then also we'll lengthen it out and made it the full hour rather than the 54, 55 minutes that we actually get. And Blue Jay Way would have actually fit into Yellow Submarine very nicely. Yeah, it would have. With the whole character of George in that film and him doing Blue Jay Way would have been just perfect. I just assume it was the latest song and therefore the the song you wanted to push. Or perhaps It's All Too Much had already been taken for the Yellow Submarine cartoon. I don't know when all that began. Well, and, and Northern Song was also out there as a possibility it would have given the darn magician something to do <laughs> rather than just sort of bouncing around well they're having a lovely time and and john and ringo talking in silly voices right they could have been doing whatever they did to dun, 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 dun. i've always loved that tune and kind of not utilized that well in the yellow submarine cartoon i don't know why it's not more to the fore in george's work we then released it, um, got it shown on the BBC on Boxing Day. And, of course, they showed it in black and white. What the BBC stupid idiots did, they showed it in black and white first. Can you imagine? So it doesn't look well in black and white colour. You can just about manage it. And so it was hated. So I, I don't recall ever reading anything as to why they broadcast it in black and white. Well, because BBC One didn't have color yet. You could see color TV in Britain at that point. Yeah, although it was still fairly rare. The next day, but that was on BBC Two, to go back to Doctor Who, which is which, which was one of their flagship shows at the time, that didn't go color until 1970. Yes, but if it was just assumed that it was going to go out on black and white TV, that would have been a red flag for somebody. I mean, they, they were paying attention to their project. Although I think that may well be an effect of not having Brian, not having anybody looking after that saying, uh, this really shouldn't go out in black and white. That's not going to work. Right. And then, of course, the, the day after, you get Paul apologizing and trying to explain on David Frost. He, he looks just so hard, you know, so, so crestfallen. Good evening, Mr. McCartney. Uh, why don't you think that the critics like this film? I don't know, you know. They just didn't seem to like it. I, I quite liked it myself. Well, I liked it. I, I saw it. I didn't see it last night because I was a bit busy. But I saw it today, and uh, 
and, and I liked it, I mean, with reservations and so on, but I mean, why were people so puzzled by it, do you think? I think they thought it was bitty, which it was a bit, you know, but it was supposed to be like that. I think a lot of people were looking for a plot, and there wasn't one. <laughs> what was the, I mean, how many people in the audience here actually saw it? Could you put it in hands? <laughs> I saw it in colour, though, so I've got two. You can see it on colour on BBC Two on January the 6th. This is BBC who bought all the advertising time tonight. But, uh, now, were you, were you, were you puzzled by the, uh... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was his idea. At some point, he was going to have to hang out with John <laughs> and face John's wit. No, no, we're not going back to uh, Ringo making sandwiches and John wrapping them in greaseproof paper from London Naked. Despite the fact that they didn't do a press conference, they did get the mood pretty accurate there. It certainly isn't as bad as the critics of the day said it was. It's not something that's just really fantastic. I've heard McCartney say, you know, Spielberg tells me it had a big influence on him. And I'm thinking, okay, that sounds good, but. This arena special has Marty Scorsese in it. While he is complimentary, he's also tap dancing around just how good it is. Oh, it was very inventive. They were doing some really interesting camera things, right. so on and so forth. But at no point does he say, yeah, it's great. Yeah, you know, that's kind of the kiss of death. when you, It's like when you play somebody a new song and they go, well, that's interesting. <laughs> The fact that they were doing interesting things is not what you really want to hear. Well, and then it's also not helped by the fact that the whole concept is so terribly English. Had ABC shown it, it would have been torn apart worse than it actually was. You know, we have no clue what the idea of a mystery trip was here in the States. Yeah, the Sherebonne tours. It it was a post-war thing in England. It was not duplicated here. Ringo refers to, we'd always end up in Blackpool and the lights were always very blurry when we got off the bus because they'd been drinking all the way down. <laughs> Ride in a bus, drink yourself legless, have a great time. Paul Gambaccini also comments that we weren't used to this whole idea of old dears and extended family. Just getting together and hanging out with your weird old relatives is not something that really anybody did in the States and really has, you know, to a certain extent died off even in England. Yeah. The idea of being stuck on a bus for X number of hours with a bunch of strange folks, family or not, is not something that any one of us today has any really idea of. The childhoods there were completely different. This is a a country that had been bombed and a good part of their population killed or maimed. They had rationing for years after the United States ended it. And so it was just, it was a different world for them. So a a couple more quotes I want to close with before we actually go into the film. Paul tells us that I suppose the whole thing has kind of a village fate feel to it. And and I could actually see that a little bit. Yeah. You know, the games and and the fun, the the extended family. Ringo tells us... In those days, thanks to some medication it was the most exciting thing we'd ever seen (laughs) the magical mystery tour and then marty scorsese and i was saying well you know it wasn't cinema it was something else i love that quote (laughs) he's not wanting to insult them (laughs) right i'm being interviewed for their little show here so i gotta say something decent And he was working with the Harrison family at the time. That was when the Living in the Material World doc was in process. Uh, I mean, that's part of how they got him for this thing. I think we can agree that it's not as bad as the British papers said it was, the reviews. It's not something that's incredibly well thought out and emotionally moving or, or anything like that. But it's the Beatles. You get to see them do I'm the Walrus and things about it that make it cool. Yeah, it would have been the most incredible bootleg ever had they not put it out. Had it just like sat on a shelf and sometime in 1972 escaped, we'd all be talking about how wonderfully amazing this thing is. Yeah. (laughs) The film starts with Auntie Jessie and John in his narrator role introduces Ringo as... Richard B. Starkey. Ringo doesn't have a middle name. Well, it's 
John. So we see them going in and buying their ticket for this mystery tour from John wearing a funny hat and nose and glasses, wearing a Groucho Marx outfit. Never explained. Is that John? Is that the magician playing as the sales guy? You can't possibly try to make a narrative out of this. John, <laughs> John is in an outfit because they needed a ticket guy. He's not playing a character that we're supposed to go, oh, that's John as the ticket man <laughs> okay yeah. okay okay I'll, I, I, I I give on that <laughs> and then Ulysses comes in and they get on the boat exactly and, and and you know wait till we get to the sirens the Ringo and Auntie Jesse get on the bus they, they argue and that's kind of funny you know it it seems that they had decided that since it works so well in hard days I didn't help they would make Ringo the talky one of the four get to carry whatever through line there is in this story he likes to act well that's true i don't think the others were all that comfortable acting well paul was as we as we will see in a minute here we meet the characters on the bus uh wendy winters the rather busty blonde jolly jimmy johnson the courier they went through a bunch of headshots and they just had an idea of well we gotta have this character this character this character ringo says that that's exactly how they cast some of the people i mean like nat jackley they knew they wanted but some of the others it's like they just went through the actor's guidebook who's available yeah you know, Ooh, i like that face then we, we get a bit with the paul and the starlet the starlet who might as well be uh, ginger from gilligan's island for all she gets to do here yeah it's also kind of interesting that it's paul hanging out with a starlet hmm wonder how that works paul and a starlet kind of a paul jane thing that's only right here at the beginning that's this one scene it doesn't ever comes back there's no narrative here i will give you that so it's not going to come back to anything they're definitely connected when he does a fool on the hill you know yeah so paul gets to hit on just about all the women in this film except auntie jesse <laughs> we meet george the photographer the midget excuse me sir yes yes i'd like to take a photograph of the young lady do you mind Paul allows him in to take the picture. Interesting that Paul allows the photographer to take the picture. He starts daydreaming, and that gives us the fool on the hill bit. Very nice. There's a legend about that that may or may not be true. Apparently, on the way over to France to film the fool on the hill bit, Paul forgot his passport. And the security guys took one look at him. Oh, that's Paul McCartney. Yeah, he can go. I just let him through. Paul McCartney above the law. Bigger than the British government. Yeah. Right. But it's a lovely sequence. It's, it's actually one of the better thought out sequences in the film. Paul's movie. It does bring up the other rumor that, uh, well, Paul had uh, unzipped his pants and let himself fly free when he's dancing around. It's a shirt tail, folks. <laughs> you just have a dirty mind. I had a similar moment later in the film here. <laughs> really it's gonna be broadcast the day after christmas it's the beatles paul wasn't prepared to show his penis it is a little bit odd that he let his shirt tail out through his trousers like that oh you know and that he's wearing this this giant overcoat right so it is sort of flopping around there oh, well okay that rumor there's a reason why it, it has continued to persist i think well i think that there's a lot about this that doesn't make any sense because it was all on the fly they were trying to be weird I mean, there's a lot of this just being strange the other thing in that scene we get the first set of shots of some clouds now one of the things that the beatles got to use was outtakes from Dr. Strangelove. Were these the Strangelove outtakes also, or was this stuff that they'd actually just film themselves? I'm I'm not certain. In flying, they are for sure. I'm just not certain whether that's the, those are the same or additional outtakes that you get in The Fool on the Hill. Because, you know, at the end, the camera goes up over the mountains and you get a bunch of cloud shots. I'm just wondering whether those are the same cloud shots or additional Strangelove outtakes. I don't know. I'll Maybe. Yeah, could be. If you look to your left, ladies and gentlemen, the view is not very inspiring. Ah, but if you look to your right... that That's where all the color comes from. I mean, that, that scene only makes sense with color. Yes. 
the song that accompanied it called flying was originally called aerial tour instrumental right or ballet it was at one time it was called ballet uh and so i thought that's a much better title for that piece although you could go flying those clouds i think are the strange love footage we fade back into the bus you have the folks on the bus robotically uh replying Miss Winters, Miss Winters, Miss Winters. And she says, if there's anything I can do for you, you know what to do. This is where the book makes it explicit that uh, all of the guys are just sort of panting over her. Right. We meet some more folks. We, we see Frida Kelly. Yes. We get Mal hanging out. And then we see George and John sitting next to each other. And we get Magic Alex over across the aisle. Yes. Then John is a magician slash narrator comes back and says... As the bus leaves the town behind and heads for the country, everything begins to change. Well, almost everything. And already the magic is beginning to work. And we cut to, I guess they have debarked the bus and they are marching through a, a British recruitment center. We get Victor Smetty yelling at folks in nonsense words. And we get another Paul sitting behind the desk, behind a sign reading, I was, which has since become a big Paul is dead clue, but what that was in real life, who knows? Yeah. Well, you know, up to this point, everything that has gone on on the bus is part of the normal world, so to speak. Fool on the Hill is a daydream and the introduction to the characters. And so the John is the magician says it's all going to change. And then you get this scene that's completely surreal. The clock strikes the next Quarter hour, I guess. <laughs> Paul's clock. There are a couple of funny bits. The photographer goes up to Victor Spinetti, and Victor Spinetti stops yelling and smiles for the camera. I like that. Then Victor Spinetti turns to Ringo and continues his yelling and gibberish, and Ringo just looks at him and says, Why? What? Why? <laughs> the weird part about the film is the script was a clock when they were going to do certain things, what the scene was. But none of the dialogue or even the reactions were scripted. They told Victor Spinetti to just do his character from What a Lovely War. I'll turn you into a man. Give you the time of your life. I'll give you the time of your life. We'll give you the time of your life. A kiss, a kiss for this lovely lady, for the first man to volunteer. Do you come? And that's what he did. Although if you think about it, it's a little bit reminiscent of the Larry David Curb Your Enthusiasm style of script writing these days. He just creates the scenarios. You write your own dialogue. Right. Although he's, he and his friends are professional television writers, so they know what they're doing, unlike the Beatles in Magical Mystery Tour. Yeah, I'm sure they're schooled in doing things off the cuff. These people were, well, maybe some were professional actors and they could have, but I think most of it was just on the spot. Oh, that's good. That's, you know, let's do that. So then they then they pop out of the uh, recruitment tent and Major McCartney's desk and Victor Spinetti are outside and everyone else is standing outside and there's a stuffed cow there. Again, something I like. You'd almost have to immerse yourself in British culture because I've read there are parts of this that, in effect, refer to Spike Milligan skits and stuff they grew up on. So some of the stuff makes sense to a British audience. It's, and not all of it, but, you know, some of it does because they've lived that culture. The sequences were just suggested often by memories from our childhood, things that we'd remembered or we remembered seeing or doing ourselves. Action! So, for instance, tug of war was something you'd see at all the village fates. There'd often be a tug of war between the uh, burly men of the neighborhood. So a lot of these things found their way in as ideas. So after they move past the recruitment center, then we see a tug of war where the adults are all on one side and the children are all on the other. That's kind of funny. 
and we get she loves you on the accordion from somewhere, maybe from Shirley, who we who we haven't met yet. Right, right. Things skip around. And then what we don't know from the film itself, what I didn't realize except for the book, is that they are involved in some sort of race after this. It's not clear what is actually going on. You just see people running around and jumping in cars and Ringo jumping in the bus. It's like, oh, they're supposed to be on a foot race and everybody's cheating. And someone's driving George's Mini Cooper. Dives in and around the bus. Uh, but George himself is in the boot, is in the trunk of the bus, which reminded me of uh, one of the cut scenes from Help where Ringo was uh, in the trunk of one of the cars. But after the race ends, you see George the photographer underneath a shade while he's taking a picture. And he comes out and he's wearing this bear lion head. Never knew what that was. It turns out that that was actually the London mascot to the Olympics of 1968. So it made sense at the time. Nobody remembers it now. Right. But it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess that's funny. It's not funny to us. But... So it's a dated reference, but it's, For sure. it is still at least nominally funny. It's amusing. Then John is back taking us to this land far away with four or five magicians, four or five. They didn't decide if Mal was really one of the magicians or not, I guess. <laughs> and that is just an excuse for Ringo to say, Where's the bus? Which he says about four or five times. The little magician scene. The bus is 10 miles north on the Dewsbury Road. Which does nothing other than to tell you, oh, the magicians are doing something with the bus. How else would they make that point? The voiceovers haven't said, I'm the magician. We end up knowing because of that voice that John uses. But up to that point, we don't see any magicians. And so that introduces them. And and I never got the red noses that the magicians had. Why do they paint their noses red? I know. Don't think about it. <laughs> really? You're going to hurt yourself. <laughs> so then we're back on the bus. Uh, there's a line that I do like where Miss Winters tells everyone to look to the right and see the ancient Roman ruins. And, and you see nothing but, flat ground well they're quite difficult to see because they're almost all flattened to the ground right well that's all those roman walls you know that are flat and close to the ground we learn from john as a narrator that the magic is taking more effect and even mr blood vessel emerges from his shell and we get a funny slash weird dream sequence of buster blood vessel and uh, auntie jesse on the beach right to a muzak version of all my life i love you yeah and so this is John's, the, the idea that everybody's kind of getting higher. The magic's taking hold. Yep, it sure is. We've got a couple more puffs now. <laughs> Pretty soon there's going to be spaghetti. I wonder if that scene was supposed to end that way or if it was just poor planning because they're in the middle of the shot and then all of a sudden what appear to be just sort of normal beachgoers pass them by and fill the frame and before they cut, it's like... Is that how you meant to end that scene, or did you just not think about it? Just let it go. One of the enduring mysteries. What the hell is that? <laughs> We're back on the bus, and Buster Bloodvessel is now, once again, in his robotic stupor, telling everybody that... I am concerned for you to enjoy yourselves within the limits of British decency. You know what I mean, don't you? Well, don't you? Yes, Mr. Blood Vessel. I like that as well. Then we roll into Walrus, which is truly a great music video. Almost. Yeah. It's not cut particularly well. I think Mickey Dolan stole the poncho thing from Ringo. Ringo's wearing a poncho. <laughs> and Paul isn't wearing shoes at times, so. During the line, you let your knickers down. There's a quick cut to the stripper, which it turns out is just a, one of the shots from behind uh, where she's getting to unsnap her bra. But if you look at it the way I looked at it, it, it looks like something else. Because <laughs> you have a dirty mind. That was exactly what I told you. <laughs> well, I already decided that before you told me. Yeah, but you know, clearly that meant something. You know, Somebody had to stick that there. I suspect that's one of John's edits. Probably. And, you know, there's little bits that I like. The slow pull-in while the uh, orchestra is playing there. But then it 
goes a little bit off. As, even as a music video, it goes a little bit off. You see someone with the clapperboard. You see a bunch of random shots which don't really fit to the beat. I mean, it's still okay as a music video, but it's not like you know the Strawberry Fields or Penny Lane videos where everything seems to fit from beginning to end. The last 45 seconds to a minute, right before the part where they're walking off with the bus, it is clips of them playing, and it's, it's clips which match everything else, but they seem to have been thrown up in the air and, oh, we'll put this here and we'll put this here and we'll put this Yeah, there. I think that's exactly the intended effect, you know, because it's been fine and it's really kind of all of a sudden little bits and pieces and it's not attached to the music, but it will come back to it. Oh, you think that was the intent? Yeah. Okay, maybe. I can accept that. You know, the bit where Paul scratches his head and you go to Clapperboard. Yeah, the Clapperboard, yeah. Well, that's an outtake. It's like you're going along with this thing and then it collapses. You you see behind the, the wall, so to speak, and then you come back to the song. I don't know. Ulysses has something to do with that. <laughs> okay, so we get back to the bus. John and little Nicola and George are playing with a red balloon. Little Nicola lives in Chicago now, by the way. She is still with us, and she's actually on Facebook. If you want little Nicola's autograph, you can write her, and she will send you an autograph. I'm glad she's living off her royalties from the tour. (laughs) (laughs) She's an artist now, but... That's cool. Anyway, then we get the announcement that luncheon is at 1.15. Now, I think this announcement was originally intended for the cutscene where they actually went for fish and chips. We have about a 10-minute segment of them actually going and purchasing and eating lunch by the pool. And you get to see everybody's eating styles. Yes, exactly. Some of which are exaggerated. Instead of the fish and chips scene, we get the Auntie Jessie's Dream segment. Right. My favorite thing about this is John is dressed up as Bobby Dykins. The little thin mustache, the slicked back margarine hair. John is dressed up as Bobby Dykins. You can't convince me otherwise. While he's shoveling the spaghetti onto poor Auntie Jessie's plate. I've read that, but I can't say that I've ever seen a picture of him to make me think that that's what he's doing. Could be. I don't know. Actually, I think uh, Julia mentioned it in her book, but we're already well past that. That was several weeks ago. Yeah, it's good to bring all this stuff in, you know. I've seen the photos of Twitchy, and I do believe that. Now, the rest of the sequence, it's almost sort of Jesse's nightmare. So to the right of them, you have people fully dressed in suits and cocktail outfits. And to the left, you have bus folks who are half-dressed. Mal has his shirt off, and... Wendy Winters uh, and her ample cleavage is is only in her bra. Right. It's like, okay. And then John has to help poor Auntie Jessie up the stairs. Our friend the ceramic cow is now uh, up on top of the set. You climb the stairs and you can pet the ceramic cow. So do you think in a way that John and Paul were making two different films? They might well have been, although Paul loves this sequence. Well, yeah. You would appreciate... The brilliance of your friend. His favorite song on the Beatles album is Happiness is a Warm Gun. So I get that totally. But I don't know that that was the film that Paul was making. Yeah, probably not. I agree with you. There continue to be some other uh, fun little gags. Uh, The policemen are back. You see them hanging out on top of the set next to Ceramic Cow. You see someone reach under and emerge with a bottle of milk. As if they had milked the uh, ceramic cow. You know, what you're describing is straight out of Monty Python. The look of it and the the absurdity of it, that's very close in in humor. So Auntie Jessie wakes from her nightmare. We get them walking through a, I guess it's a hunting ground. You, You have people hunting fox or hunting for birds or something. Yeah. Could have been dangerous, but oh well. And there's a little tent in the middle of this field, and they all climb in. It reminds me of people walking into the TARDIS or the inside of Snoopy's doghouse. Yeah, it's bigger on the inside. And this is parodied brilliantly in the Ruddles, where uh, they do with the Tragical History Tour. You, you see a bit where everyone climbs into the tent, again, because it was probably cheap to do. Could be. But the fun thing about the Ruddles parody 
they apparently ran out of budget. So the Ruddles are in costume, but everybody else representing the rest of the folks on the bus are dressed in very 1970s outfits. <laughs> yeah. The film that they watch is George's Blue Jay Way. And this is where Ringo gets his credit as a director of photography. He was bringing lenses and things on, and, and he was responsible for the look of the Blue Jay Way. We got a bunch of that footage, too. Yeah. I, I think we have that whole sequence that has been out on boot in the last couple of years. Yeah. So we got about you know, 10, 15 minutes worth of filming in, uh, in Ringo's garden. Playing the statuary and playing soccer and... The big sunflower. <laughs> bits of silly nonsense. Note that George is wearing a cravat. <laughs> I don't remember George ever otherwise wearing a cravat, but it's like, ooh, he's trying to be one of the Scooby-Doo gang. <laughs> and he's got a talisman, which is reminiscent, but not the same as the talisman that John wore during the late 60s. And then during this, we get this... It's a very strange shot of, I guess it's Mal, but written on his chest is the words, Magical Mystical Boy. Who thought that was a good idea? <laughs> I don't know. It's one of those things you ask Mal to do, and Mal does it. Okay, he's already had his shirt off. Mal, don't bother putting your shirt on. We want to film you. If we want to write the words, Magical Mystical Boy on your chest. <laughs> yeah, don't try to make sense. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm trying too hard. Okay, so the other thing about this clip, at the end we see a bunch of kids, and I don't think any of them is Julian Lennon, so who are these kids running through Ringo's garden? I guess it might have been Ringo's kids. There's like six kids, and Ringo's weren't quite that old yet. No. So. no. Again, not not thinking too hard, just that's a question that I'm genuinely asking. Yeah, I think, was it Zach like a month <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, who, who knows? Friends, family, and other. Yeah. They all climb back out of the tent and get back in the bus, and the bus backs over the tent. <laughs> right. Which is also a bit of fun. Right. Then we get the crew singing along to old sing-alongs, and actually, again, in the outtakes, you have them singing Yesterday and various other Beatles songs as well, which for the most part, they just clipped. Shirley's Wild Accordion. Here's where we meet Shirley and her accordion. Yeah, which is one of several pieces that they composed for the film. A lot of the incidental music, they composed Shirley's Wild Accordion. They did the, I guess you'd call it music, for Jesse's Dream. So there are several things that they did. Then in and out, while this is going on, you see clips at sunset of Paul and you know George, the midget photographer, Cavorting on a beach. It's uh, okay. Put it here. You got. You got it. You wanted to use it. Put it here. <laughs> I don't care. Then the next to the last stop, the men and the women get separated. The men go into what is a strip club, apparently. Yes, it, that's what it was. The band on the stage is Viv Stanshall and Neil Ennis, the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, and they're performing an Elvis pastiche called Death Cab for Cutie. Yeah which later became the name of a great band. And, of course, it reinforced their relationship together. Paul would, uh, a few months later, produce their single. And there is an uncensored version out there. You you can see Jan Carson's breasts if you really want to go find them. <laughs> and those with dirty minds will. <laughs> I've already seen them, so. Well, <laughs> right. So if you want to. There's probably more interesting things to look up, but you can find you them. can find them. Neither in the book nor in the film do we know where the women got off to. Well, the men went to the strip club. The women went off somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. 1967. Uh, <laughs> a, a Mary Kay party. I don't know. <laughs> that then brings us to the end of the film. Whether we're we're glad of that or not, I don't know. I, I could have used another half hour. Well, we'd just be going, and what the hell was this? <laughs> we, so we get the, the Mother Should Know sequence. Right, which is, as far as I know, the only choreographed dance we ever got from the Beatles. During that arena special, they're showing Ringo the footage, and Ringo just points and laughs at himself. There's some dancing for you. People marching by and dancers in the costume swirling around sort of vaguely busby berkeley style right and the, kind of the girl scouts with you know her to whoever they are 
giving a salute as they pass. You know? Oh my gosh. Then at the very end, something I, I hadn't quite noticed before, the camera goes to a really weird angle as someone hands Paul those flowers. Huh. And then Paul just lets loose. You know, the other three are trying to keep in time with each other. Paul just sort of goes off and does his own thing. He kind of breaks the fourth wall. A little bit. He gives you the thumbs up. What would become the famous wacky Macca thumbs aloft. <laughs> right. And then it cuts to the closing credits. The Beatles in suits disappear and are replaced by the magicians. Right. Who come running out to the uh, reprise on Hello Goodbye. Mike McGear, who had not been in the film, shows up here. We see him running by next to Paul. That had to have been late footage in a way if they're doing it to specifically that song because it wasn't the single until after most of Magical Mystery Tour had been filmed. So it could have been a whole other cast. Yeah, I, I suppose so. As part of the closing credits, we learned that Jan Carson appeared by permission of the Paul Raymond Review Bar. Yeah. That's good to know. She's under contract. John returns as the narrator. And that was a magical mystery tour. I told you. Goodbye. Don't you think there are more people in that closing scene than wherever on the bus? Oh, easily. So where do they come from? Everybody in that closing scene is that crowd footage that they keep cutting to. You know, periodically through the film, they just cut to a crowd applauding or a crowd standing around tightly next to each other. That's all the same crowd. That's not stock footage. That's stuff they film. Right. Now, that's a gag that David Letterman would put to use many years later. <laughs> he would frequently just take audience footage of, of standing ovations and put them behind jokes that didn't work and things. <laughs> but it, it is the magical mystery tour gag. Well, he told us. Oh, John Lennon did. So, <laughs> there we are. We talked about grass. We talked about the magical mystery tour. And Ulysses. So you people out there should be really educated by now. Despite all that, and despite the fact that we like making fun of it, it's not a bad film. It's not a terrible film by any stretch. No. It's the Beatles. That's the conclusion I've come to. It's it's worth seeing. You know, I don't know if I was trying to, you know, introduce someone to the Beatles. It wouldn't be the thing that I showed them necessarily first. <laughs> But it is the Beatles. I mean, it's kind of like Head. You know, if you like the monkeys, you don't want to start with Head. <laughs> no. Head, Head actually has more of a story than Magical Mystery Tour does. Yeah. It's got more of a narrative and makes more sense. So in conclusion, is there any way they could have made something even remotely linear out of this footage, do you think? Or would they have been better off just sort of forgetting the idea of even trying to do a a film per se and just stringing this together as a series of music videos? Well, I don't know. It's kind of what it is. I mean, a series of videos because no one ever sat down to think of a story. It, it wasn't their intent to do that. So in the end, I don't think they had the footage to make it anything other than it is. There's a cool re-edit that someone has done, putting in footage from all of the promo films from Strawberry Fields, Penny Lane forward, cut into the Magical Mystery Tour, and it works surprisingly well. Hmm. That's cool. That'd be interesting to see. It actually makes the story such as it is make a little bit more sense, believe it or not. Huh. <laughs> Which I guess just goes to show you exactly how loose the original story was. That you could do just about anything, but yeah, you know, the fact that they'd been in a bunch of videos and had that experience doesn't mean that you really can do it yourself. And so there were things that they did that were amateurish and and could have been shot better. I mean, again, most of Walrus is brilliant, but you know that thirty to forty-five seconds of randomness takes you out of it a little bit well i get that but and i think uh fool on the hills is really good and blue jay ways magical mystical boy aside is a really good sequence right and your mother should know is not bad it's just kitschy it is what it is yeah it is of the film so that that's in effect what it is a, a bunch of music videos tied together with something that nobody planned i guess we'll let martin scorsese have the last word and it, was, it wasn't cinema, it was something else. He also said it was interesting. <laughs> All right. 
that's that's enough on uh, the magical mystery tour. I think I'm going to go smoke some dad grass myself. Oops, <laughs> did I say that? <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, party on. All right. We'll be back next week with a new show. Okay. Bye. <laughs> Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. I think the younger people would get it. People who knew what was going on in, in society would get it. And the older people who were expecting Morecambe and Wise or a British uh, variety show wouldn't get it. And I think, in a way, quite rightly, would be annoyed. It's like they'd been cheated out of the Christmas special. There was, it seemed, very little magic about this particular mystery tour, most reporting viewers, in fact, finding it virtually incomprehensible. There was no theme or storyline, they complained. The programme appearing to consist of confused, disconnected shots of the weirdest things and suggesting a nightmare rather than a mystery tour. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.